Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. Good morning, and it's good to be with you. In Ephesians 4, we hear a unique and intriguing discipleship phrase that has been bouncing around in my head and my heart for a while now. I'd like to explore it with you this morning on a trek that will take us from Ephesians to Matthew 11 and back again. The phrase is, learn the Messiah, emotheta ton Christan. What is striking about this language, and something that commentators note, is that nowhere else in the New Testament is the verb learn, manthano, used with a person as its direct object. The collocation is also an odd one in English. We can speak of learning a subject or a skill in school, like learning mathematics. We can talk about learning a musical instrument, learning the piano, and even learning a disposition learning patience. We don't typically speak of learning a person. I don't refer to learning my students or learning my grandchildren. We typically use the language of learning about people rather than learning people. But what if I did? I rather like the idea of reflecting on the notion of learning Harrison or learning Daisy, my beautiful grandchildren. Mark is just an extra in the picture. He's my son-in-law, so (laughs) Daisy. Yeah, and and Beans is up front. Beans is always near food, so yeah. So Daisy and Harrison, yes. And and you can take it back down, because that's too distracting, much more fun to look at than me. Thank you. uh, So the language presses beyond knowing something about someone to knowing someone in a more relational mode. And this fits my grandmotherly experience and identity. I have had the privilege in the past three years to enjoy the arrival of Harrison, who is two and a half, going on three, and Daisy, who just turned one in August. Grandparenting is certainly, in my experience, and in the words of a friend, an extravagance. And it is a relational journey from beginning to end. I can learn more about Harrison and Daisy, certainly, but my learning of them and their learning of me is bound up in relationship. It is greater than the sum of the parts of merely knowing things about them. I don't simply learn about Harrison, though I do that. I really do learn Harrison and learn Daisy as I explore who they are in relationship to me and in relation to the world around them. To give an example, my month apart from Harrison, then four months old, in April of 2020, because of COVID restrictions and precautions, was excruciating. I'd been so engaged in his life those first four months, even living with them essentially that first month, as my daughter said, you are going to stay with us for a month, right? And I said, sure. Um, I had been so engaged, and then COVID sent us all to our separate addresses with no in-person contact for that month. During this very long month, I could and I did learn about what Harrison was doing in terms of his sleep schedule, whether he was sleeping through the night, whether he was tolerating tummy time or turning over, all those things. Kate, my daughter, filled me in regularly on his development 
and sent me daily photos as well as connecting via FaceTime. But there was a real way in which I could not learn Harrison in that month, in those dark days, as was more than apparent when we re reunited in later April and I couldn't stop tearing up, in fact, weeping actually. I'm not a big cry person, but I could not stop crying as we drove to their house and as we were with them and as we left. Um, just to hold him, to see him, to kiss his sweet head. Learning Harrison, it turns out, was all about relationship. Commenting on the language of learning Christ in Ephesians 4.20, Frank Thielman identifies it as relational language. He writes that believers certainly learn about Christ and his teachings, but they have developed a relationship with him as a living person. I think that is why the phrase learning the Messiah is so evocative and compelling for me. We also see from the context of Ephesians 4 that this phrase is used to express a profound contrast. The previous context references the past ignorance of the Gentiles who are a significant contingent in the letter's audience. Paul refers to their past ignorance and their futile ways of thinking that have led them to live in indulgence and in greed, 4, 16 through 19. Their entire existence prior to faith, their thinking as well as their way of life was marked by not knowing Christ. Paul then contrasts this past of theirs with the new reality that marks believers. Yet you did not learn the Messiah this way. If you really did hear about him and were taught in him, since the truth is in Jesus. Verses 20 through 21. Verse 21 fleshes out what learning the Messiah involved for these believers. They heard about him, presumably in the preaching of the good news, and they were taught in him. In the Pauline letters, we often hear the prepositional phrase, en auto or en Christo, in him, in Christ. This Pauline turn of phrase evokes the location, as it were, of the Messiah's realm, the new reality Christians are inaugurated into because they have joined with Jesus, the Messiah. Tony Thistleton describes this Pauline phrase as a concept of corporate status which provides the ground for Christian life and destiny. It helps me for understanding this concept of in Christ or in the Messiah to reflect on the Christology I grew up with. That view of Christ was defined by such hymns as, what a friend we have in Jesus. And I come to the garden, especially those lines, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. This was a pretty individualistic and pietistic Christianity and it was quite wonderful to experience. But it was missing something as well. It was a Jesus and me Christianity. And what Paul means by in the Messiah doesn't precisely contradict that spirituality. It does, though, nuance it and redirect it. Think of it this way. If we draw a circle that re represents Christian reality, my received tradition put Jesus in the middle of that circle with the circle representing my life. So Jesus in me would capture, would be the caption on that circle. For Paul, the Messiah is a circle, and the people of the Messiah sit within or populate the circle. I think Paul's caption would read, we are in the Messiah. So back to Ephesians. Christians have learned the Messiah because they have moved into a new sphere of existence. They have a new address, you might say. 
one that is defined by Jesus, the Messiah. A different plane of existence generated by the Messiah himself. And learning the Messiah and being taught in the Messiah has resulted in truth rather than ignorance and in righteousness and piety based in truth rather than indulgence and greed. The Messiah has left his marks on the entire way of life of the believer. Showing how Jesus leaves his marks on the believer's entire way of life is also something Matthew communicates. While Ephesians focuses on how believers have already learned Christ at the time of their conversion, Matthew in his gospel offers an ongoing invitation to learn from Jesus. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, we read Jesus' offer of discipleship to all who are longing for abiding rest. Jesus speaks the words, learn from me. Verses 28 through 30 read, Come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Jesus invites all who are weary and weighed down to learn from him. And Matthew intends this as a standing offer for everyone in his audience. So let's take a closer look at this powerful invitation within its Matthean context. The words of Jesus come at the end of chapter 11, which Matthew has shaped to highlight themes of wisdom and Christology. Jesus' identity is a question raised at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, John the Baptist, now in prison, sends some of his followers to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? His question is precipitated by Matthew's language of the Messiah's deeds. The Messiah's deeds have caused him to wonder if he is the one who was to come. And these have been reported to him while he's in prison. And his question suggests that something about the ministry of Jesus, his ministry of teaching and healing, which is what we've just been seeing in chapters 8 and 9, and really 5 through 9, doesn't fit very well with John's expectations. The answer John gives confirms that it is precisely his healing work that is at the center of his ministry. He evokes Isaiah's vision of final restoration in verses 4 and 5. And he says, go and announce to John what you are hearing and seeing. Those who are blind receive sight and those unable to walk are able to. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel proclaimed to them. John's messianic expectation, if we go back to Matthew 3, where John is introduced to us, involved more judgment than restoration, at least for the nations and for any in Israel who were not ready to repent and welcome God's kingdom that was coming in Jesus. Expectations for the Messiah to remove the Gentiles, read here Rome, from Jerusalem are also prominent in Jewish literature of the time, for example, in Psalm of Solomon 17. Yet according to these verses in Matthew, the way Jesus is Messiah is quite different than that portrait. So much so that Jesus feels it necessary to add after his litany of restoration activities, blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. Such confounding of expectations fits the theme of wisdom that Matthew weaves through this chapter. And this theme is expressed clearly in verse 19, 
where Jesus assesses wrong interpretations of what he is doing in his ministry by affirming that wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This line forms a bracket or an inclusio with 11.2. The deeds of the Messiah or the Messiah's deeds are aligned with the deeds of wisdom. Ta erga tu Christu and ta ergo tes Sophias. Suggesting that Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. Something I proposed last night at the end of the lecture. But back to Jesus' invitation at the end of chapter 11. These verses also evoke wisdom themes from Jewish traditions through words and phrases used by Matthew's Jesus. Similar wisdom motifs are prominent, for example, in Proverbs 8 and in Sirach, a Jewish wisdom book written during the second century before the Common Era. In Sirach, the author writes from the vantage point of wisdom, much like we see in Proverbs 8. Wisdom calls out, Come to me, you who desire me, and eat your fill of my produce. Sirach 24. Jesus calls out, Come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11. The author of Sirach also writes of grappling with wisdom, Sophia, and directing his soul toward it in chapter 51. He connects wisdom to Torah by referencing wisdom's yoke, zygos, a term frequently tied to the guidance of the Torah and the guidance it offers, and in Sirach, it's attributed to wisdom. Sirach's author describes the fruits of wisdom with much the same language that Matthew and Matthew's Jesus uses in 11, 28 through 30. So here's Sirach 51, 26 through 27. Put your neck under the yoke, Zygos, and let your souls, suke receive instruction. It is to be found, Hurisco, close by. See with your eyes that I have labored, labored, kopiao, little, and found myself much rest, anapasis. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down, kopiao, and I will give you rest, anapao. Take my yoke, Zygos, upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find, hirisco, rest, anapasis, for your souls, suke. For my yoke, Zygos, is easy, and my load is light. Jesus speaks as if he is wisdom, because Jesus is the very embodiment of wisdom, of God's wisdom. And because he is wisdom in the flesh, his yoke is easy and light, but what does that mean? I think it means that his covenant loyalty provides the model for his followers. He shows them the way to go. But even more, because he is wisdom, those who come to Jesus are invited to learn from him. Jesus is their teacher in the way of discipleship. And he himself is the wisdom they need for the journey and the rest that they long for. Learn from me, Jesus invites. If we consider Ephesians 4 in light of Matthew 11, we hear that Christians are encouraged to see their faith as a journey of learning. Now, as someone whose top strengths on the strengths finder are input and learning, I'm very at home with this idea. But what we learn and the way we learn in this window is all about relationship. That's what the language points us to. And it's about a relationship with one who defies normal relational categories. This is intimated in the intriguing face you have 
intriguing phrase, you have learned the Messiah. Not only is this language highly relational, the idea of learning the Messiah suggests a quite different kind of relationship. One that involves experiencing the corporate and eschatological reality that is the Messiah. It suggests a different kind of relationship, one that involves experiencing the present reality of one who presses the boundaries of human comprehension. Matthew adds to this vision. Jesus in Matthew offers the closest of relationships to his followers. Come to me, learn from me, you will find rest. And the idea of learning from Jesus, who is wisdom, suggests a different kind of relationship, one that involves experiencing the present reality of one who presses the boundaries of human comprehension. In reflecting on what it means to learn from Jesus, I've appreciated Luke Timothy Johnson's book, Living Jesus. Johnson reflects on the complexities of what it means to learn from Jesus, our living and present Messiah. I'm going to share an extended quotation from Johnson in his book, Living Jesus. When someone is dead, even someone we knew alive, we may be able to learn more about him or her as time goes on. But when we think someone is alive, we have a completely different set of expectations. People who are alive are still capable of doing new things, of saying new things. They can change their minds. They can show up in different places from the ones they used to inhabit. They can surprise us. When someone is still alive and we are in relationship with that person, our knowledge of the person is more multiform than in the case of someone dead. The process of learning is therefore much more complicated. The, more, the most important question concerning Jesus, then, is simply this. Do we think he is dead or alive? If Jesus is simply dead, there are any number of ways in which we can relate ourselves to his life and his accomplishments. And we might even, if some obscure bit of data should show up, hope to learn more about him. This is what all, all of us scholars long for. <laughs> uh, Johnson goes on. But we cannot reasonably expect to learn more from him. And he concludes this way. If Jesus is alive, however, everything changes. It is no longer a matter of our questioning a historical record, but a matter of our being put in question by the one who has broken every rule of ordinary human existence. If Jesus lives, then it must be as life giver. Jesus is not simply a figure of the past in that case, but a person in the present, not merely a memory that we can analyze and manipulate, but an agent who can confront and instruct us. What we learn about Jesus must therefore include what we continue to learn from him. Accepting the invitation of the living Jesus means walking in the way of discernment. Discernment is a lifelong pattern of listening for and living out Jesus' direction for life. Discernment is a posture of responsiveness and attentiveness to Christ's voice and ways in the present. It is having our antenna tuned in a Godward direction. Building on the assumption that God and Christ is already at work in our lives, discernment is a process of watching for that work, listening for God's voice, and following Jesus' lead. Learning from Jesus is a complex and wondrous reality for Christians. We've been divinely initiated into learning the Messiah. 
And we have this amazing ongoing invitation to learn from Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. And Jesus gave that invitation himself. His offer of relationship comes with his self-revelation that he is lowly and humble and longs to give us rest. May we, each of us, respond to that offer each and every day and follow Jesus, who is for us both Messiah and wisdom. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel Podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday. 